Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are studying together the subject of life under the sun, with the sun. And we are today in the third section of the book, Streets That Go Nowhere. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask that the Word of God will be taken by the Spirit of God and built into each heart, meeting the needs of each hearer, and especially of those who do not have today a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray also for those who do, but whose feet are on one of these streets going nowhere, and their Christian life has stalled out. Help them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Third section of this book deals with the subject of streets that go nowhere. We have used this title because in the, the Solomon in this chapter, beginning with chapter 6 through chapter 8, is dealing with those who have begun their walk with God. And in the beginning they progressed. They grew in grace. Their Christian life was vibrant. But sometime or other they just stalled out. Their growth pattern in the last year or months has been more or less stagnant, if not going downhill. Now he's pointed out that there are several reasons possible for this. One of them is that you may have turned off to live on Main Street. And that's just a title we've given to that common evil of mistaking the blessings from God with fellowship with God. How many of us there are who are blessed by God and we think that because we're blessed by God that therefore the, the sanction of God is upon our lives but we really do not know anything about him personally. Others have slipped off onto Hollywood or, yes, Hollywood Boulevard. That is, they have substituted the cosmetics of church life and church work and church committees for a real walk with God. They, have mis they are mistaking fun with fellow believers for fellowship with God and with his saints. Others walk and live on memory lane. That's just a title for the folly 
of thinking that yesterday with its blessings was better than today. The failure to consider today as God's gift to us and to trust him to use us today to accomplish his perfect will even better than yesterday. And many others, and this is such a common one also, go into live on University Avenue, which again is but a title for those who are practicing the folly of leaning on one's own understanding, which we generally call common sense. The folly of leaning upon one's own understanding rather than upon the wisdom of God as found in this book. This folly, by the way, is often expressed in two distinctly different ways. It is expressed often by the pattern of legalism. It is also expressed by a pattern of libertarianism. The wisdom of God is like the excellent wife whose worth is greater than jewels and who builds her house upon the firm foundation of God. While the wisdom of the world is like the harlot whose heart is a snare and net and whose hands are chains binding one to bitter vexation of spirit. And today, in the eighth chapter, we come to a fourth street or a fifth street going nowhere, namely life under the sun on Pennsylvania Avenue. There's a famous house on Pennsylvania Avenue that is a symbol of political life. And there are many who believe that the solution to man's needs will come through the governments established by men. Chapter 8 says, Who is like the wise man? Now, what wise man? Who is like what wise man? Well, the answer, of course, is back in verse 28, which I am still seeking, he says, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. The wise man here is that one man. Who is like the wise man? Or another way of putting it, are you that one among thousands? By the way, 
I don't know how many people have asked me in the last two weeks about the word woman in this text. I've even had some of my, quote, friends tell me that I had a simulated heart attack in order to avoid preaching on this text. <laughs> Especially the man who uh, told me before we began, he said, I'm waiting for you to get to chapter 7, verse 28. <laughs> and I hope you were listening when Lloyd gave you the answer last week. I think you ought to recognize something else, that that's not the first time the word woman is used in this text. It is used up in verse 26, where he said, I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. You remember that in the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote a hymn in praise of the wisdom of God. And he gave the description of the wisdom of God by using the figure of speech of a beautiful, godly woman. Now here, in chapter 7, where he is speaking about the wisdom of this world, the wisdom that is earthly and demonic. And he uses again the figure of speech of a woman who is a deceitful harlot. Now when you come down to verse 28, the meaning of the word does not change. This is especially reinforced by the fact that the word for man here, I have found one man among a thousand. The word for man there is not the unique word referring to a male person. It's that same word found over in Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 27 where it says in the that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female created he them. We use that same word the same way in English. When we're not referring to the male, but we're referring to mankind, the human species, a human being. And what he has said in verse 28 is that among the 1,000 human beings, there is one man of wisdom, but none who are following or in the hands of this woman who snares them with her nets and chains, not one of these comes to a knowledge of the wisdom of God. Now he's talking about this one wise one who escapes from the wisdom of the world, escapes from the nets of this false wisdom. Who is like this wise man? And he goes on to say that this man is to keep the commandment of the king. And he says to him, do not be in a hurry to leave him, that is the king. Do not join in an evil matter, 
for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. There is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. In this particular passage, he is talking about what should be man's response to government. And he's talking about how will the wise man, the man who has come into the wisdom of God, how will this wise man respond to the demands of government? And his first point in chapter 1 is that he points out the path of wisdom. First of all, he identifies the wise man. Who is he? Who is like the wise man? Well, he tells us he is the one who knows the interpretation of the matter. You know, we very often confuse knowledge with wisdom. And we think that if we have knowledge, we have wisdom. But that is not always the case. Wisdom is the proper, correct use of knowledge. And a wise man not only knows, not every man who knows is a wise man. A wise man is one who takes what he knows and applies it properly to the matters of his life. He takes the wisdom of the commands and the promises of the Word of God and he uses them to interpret the things that are going on in his daily experience. He evaluates what is happening in his life by means of the commands and promises of God and decides on the pattern of behavior that is to be his. This is the wise man that he's talking about. And then he points out the issue in the life of the wise man. For he says, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to be. Oh, how many Christians there are who as they face the matters of their lives, the problems, the decisions they must have to make, they have stern, flint-like vision faces because they have to steal themselves. They're not sure. They don't know what to do. And they, their visage becomes hard as they face the problem. But when a man 
have discovered the simplicity of accepting the commands and the promises of God. And he applies them to the matters of his life. His face relaxes. He beams. He begins to smile with confidence. Look beginning at verse 16, will you please? He says, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man, here it is, that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously day and night without sleeping, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the quote, wise man says, I know. The fact is, he cannot understand. And that's the third thing he's pointing out about this wise man. The inability of the wise man to know all that he wants to know. Even though you search the scriptures night and day, even though you memorize them all and spend your nights and your days in understanding them and seeking them out, there are still going to be matters in your life. There are still going to be things taking place in your life that you will not truly understand for the simple reason that you don't have the capacity now in this life under the sun to understand them. You do have the commands and the promises of the Word of God to give you guidance and direction in the midst of the matters in which you live. And even though you may not understand them, you are given enough in the Word of God to guide you. And you discover that you're not a Gnostic. You do not live by what you know, but that you walk by faith. You trust God using the wisdom that God has given you and this enables you to relax your face and smile with confidence. Now, having pointed that out, he then goes on to point out to us that the path, the response to government also includes the priority of obedience. For he says in verses 2 and 3, he says, keep the commandment of the king. How many of you know a king? I don't know. Oh, one or two hands. Look at that. We got some people who know kings. I know a couple who claim to be king. I even one, know one who, who, who tried to make himself an emperor. But usually we don't run into kings. So doesn't this verse apply to us? This is saying that we're to keep the mouth of the king. 
Of course, we understand that immediately. That in our government, which is not a government by kings, we have the mouth of the king in our laws that have been given to us by our national and state and local governments. What are we to do about these laws? We are to keep them. Why? Because we have taken an oath before God. You say, when? When you saluted the flag. The second thing he points out is in verse 3. He says, do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. In our government, if there is some kind of laws going on that we do not agree with, which we think are wrong, we have procedures and methods that we may follow to change the laws. This, as believers, we should become actively involved in. But we should not be involved in open rebellion against the laws of the land. We are to keep them. You say, oh, but that refers, of course, to good laws. After all, uh, uh, you've got to remember that there are wicked laws. And you need to remember that the Apostle Paul wrote something about this over in the book of Romans chapter 13. And in chapter 13, verse 1, which we studied, I think it was about last January, we read this very thing. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. And remember that this was written when Paul was living under the cruel rule of the Roman Caesars. The third thing that he points out here is the power of, of the authorities. In verse 4 he says, Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? Believers recognize that fact, that fact that is written here, if your finger is still in Romans and you look at it, please. The fact he says there in verse 13, there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance, the judgment of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation for themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. In other words, God has permitted and established upon the earth the authorities that he desires. And human governments have and hold this authority in trust from God. And having pointed this out, he then goes on to point out to us the performance that is expected of the wise man. Look at it there in verse 5. He says, first of all, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. 
What is to be the performance of the wise man? He is to keep the commands of the government. Why? That he might experience no trouble. Why? Because he needs to remember his priority. Why has God permitted you to continue to live upon this earth? Now that you have accepted Christ as your Savior and your sins have been washed away and you have been declared righteous in the eyes of God, why does God permit you to live here on the earth? Why doesn't he just take you to heaven? The answer is very obvious, isn't it? He has a task for you to perform. And what is the priority of the task which he has for us to perform? The priority of that task is to preach the gospel to every creature. It is not to reform society. It is not to establish some kind of a, of a human kingdom upon this earth that is perfect. It is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ all over this world so that the Spirit of God can use the Word of God to call out from the nations of this world a people for His name and to build the church of Christ. That is our priority. That is our responsibility. And he says now, in the process of carrying that out, obey the royal commands that you might experience no trouble. That you can go on with your ministry. Now, Suppose the royal command comes to us as it did to the apostles and says, do not preach in that name. What are we to do? We're to do what the apostles did. They looked at the king and they said, which is correct unto you? To obey your word or to obey the word of God? And they went out, and they preached in the name of Jesus. And they willingly went to jail for it. You see, this is our responsibility. We are to obey the commands of government, that we might live in a measure of peace, that we might carry on our ministry of evangelism. But if the government challenges our right to preach the gospel, then we must stand firm and go on with the task that God has given to us, even if we have to pay the penalty. And then if you look, please, at this passage, he tells us a second thing. Look at it. He said, in the, right in the middle of verse 5, he says, For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight may I stop right there that word translated delight if you have a King James version you'll notice that it is translated by the word purpose for every purpose if you have an NIV translation you'll notice that the word delight here is translated with the word matter for every matter. Literally, it's the word thing. See? 
And what he is saying, there is a proper time and procedure for everything. But what kind of thing is he talking about? Look at the rest of the verse. When a man's trouble is heavy upon him. You see? You and I live, live under these human governments, and they are far from infallible. They manipulate currency, and the next thing you know, <laughs> we are in inflation. So they manipulate the currency again, and we're out of a job. And they fool with this, and they fool with that, and the results of the flumblings of human government around about us, you and I are constantly under heavy pressure, especially on April 15th. But it isn't only referring to those things. Pressures come from all kinds of things around about us. Pressures come into our lives that are heavy. Now, what is he saying? He is saying that the wise heart knows the time and procedure for every heavy that comes into our lives. Now, just what does he mean by this time and pressure? Well, the first word we have no trouble with at all, do we? Turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. There we're told there is an appointed time for everything. Verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything. A time for birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to, to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up. And in verse 11 he says, he, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. So that's the first thing we know. We know that our times are in his hands. You and I cannot pick the time for a heavy to come into our lives. He says that right down in verse 7. If anyone knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? We do not know when these heavies are coming. We don't control the times. But we know that he does. We know that every time for everything that comes into our lives he controls. We are sure within our hearts that God controls the times. The times, our times, are in his hands. But what about the second one? Time and procedures. Now again, if you have a King James Version... You will notice that it does not say procedure. It says times and judgments. Well, now, which is it? 
Well, let me show you that word in another context. Will you turn with me back, please, to the, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 21, to be exact. Now, I'm sure I do not need to tell you that in Exodus chapter 20, you have the story of the giving of the law. How God came down on Mount Sinai. How he gathered the people before him at the base of the mountain. How he spoke from the fire and the thunder and enunciated clearly so that the people could hear him each one of the Ten Commandments. And as the people heard him, they backed up and before long were in full flight, running away as fast as they could. And when Moses caught up to them, they said, Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. You go up and talk to him face to face and come back and tell us what he says, and we will do it. But they had heard. They had heard the Ten Commandments. They had heard the law of God, the expression of his holy righteousness, summed up in those ten words. Moses went back and came face to face with God. And then in chapter 21, and you can read on in 22, 23, 24, etc., he does something. He hears something from God. What is it? Look at verse 1. Now these are the ordinances. Now if you have a King James Version, it says these are the judgments. It's the same word as in the book of Ecclesiastes translated procedures. These are the procedures which you are to set before them. These are the judgments. These are the ordinances. What is he talking about? Well, just go on and read it. And you find that what God does with Moses there on the mountain is he gives to Moses a series of laws, rules, and methods of procedure that flows out of the Ten Commandments. In other words, he takes the Ten Commandments and he applies them and interprets through them specific things in the life of the people of Israel. The rabbis have numbered them over 700 of them. The ordinances, the procedures. That is what God is saying. He says, you and I are faced with heavies that come into our lives. We know the times are in his hands. We are in the midst of this by his appointment. We're under the pressure of the heavy because he has given it to us. We also know the procedure. 
We know how to interpret the heavens. We know what to do as we face the heavens. Have you ever noticed a tremendous promise over in the book of 2 Peter? Will you turn there, please? This is a tremendous passage of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 2. Chapter 1, rather, excuse me. And verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. What does it say? Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you know that, my fellow believer? Do you know that, beloved? Do you know that God gives to you everything you need to face every moment of your life and to live in that moment in a godly fashion. You don't have to go look for something else. You don't have to pray for anything else. God says he gives you the moments of the heavy. Everything you need for your life in a pattern of godliness at that time. How does he do this? Look at what the verse says. Seeing his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see, God does not tell us to live according to precepts and laws or even principles. God wants us to walk in fellowship with him. He says, when that heavy comes upon you, I'm in control of the time of its coming. Now I am with you. And through the knowledge of that I will give you, you will know the proper way to go, the proper thing to do in the midst of the heavy. How does he give us that knowledge? Again, look at the verse. This time, verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. How? Through the commands and through the promises that he has written in his word. That's how. He says, when the heavy comes upon you, even the heavy of death, for verse 8, for verse 8 is talking about death. No man has authority over the, to restrain the wind with the wind. If you have a King James Version, you'll notice it says there that it's talking about the spirit 
of man. He says there, he says that no man has the, that the spirit of man cannot control the spirit of man. The argument is to which way you translate it, by wind or by spirit, because the Hebrew word is the same. The context, I think, is in favor of the King James Version. That no man by, by means of his spirit can control and keep his spirit locked up in his body and thus escape death. For he goes on and says, he says, he says, the authority over the day of death is in the hands of God, not in your hands. There is no discharge in the time of that war. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. Now, you and I don't know too much about that last phrase, but Africans have no trouble with it because as death begins to come into a family in Africa, they call the witch doctors. They call the medicine people. And they even will deal with black magic in order to try to escape death. And they're told that no evil can stop the day of death when God has appointed that day to come. You see? When the heavy comes, it comes from God. You can't control it. But you can know what to do in it. How? By simply and calmly doing what the commands and the promises of the Word of God tell you to do. Excuse a personal reference. Just almost a week ago, two weeks ago now, I got this pain in my body that was I was unable to interpret. I walked off the golf course and came home and tried medication. It did not help me. We got an appointment with the doctor immediately. I went down to the doctor and I expected the doctor, you know, to to give me the pill and take this thing away and I'd go on about my business. And the next thing you know, the room was filled with firemen. They were lifting me up off the place and putting me on a, on a gurney and they were taking me down the building and I was seeing the lights go by. Next thing you know, I was in one of those uh, um, cars, those automobiles that the, that the firemen drive around. I was being driven across the city, staring at the lights above me, taken out and into a hospital and walked down the, went down the corridor looking at the lights over my head until I ended up in a CC unit. Immediately, I was surrounded by some young women who began to stick needles in me. <laughs> they were very efficient. I want to tell you the calmness of those young women and their efficiency was impressive. But suddenly, among the, those, the faces of those young ladies just over my head, a familiar face appeared and one of the young women of this church said, Pastor Harold, and she shared with me a word of comfort. They got all the needles in the proper place and all the bottles hung where they're supposed to be, and they left me. And suddenly through the door comes another woman of this church, and she walks up to me and grabs my hand and prays with me. I want to tell you, I was scared stiff. You know that? I didn't know what was going to happen. But with that girl, a nurse that had come from another station, had come. I heard about it and just rushed down there to just for a moment to share a word with me. And that woman came in there. God's 
ministered his word to my heart. The heavy was there. But the assurance came across me. I was in his hands. The time was his. What to do? You know what I did? We had had a business meeting the night before in which we had been dealing with the budget of this church. And left alone there, I laid back and I began to pray for several of the young men in our staff. I knew their budget had been cut. I knew that their program was going to be hurting. And I prayed for them. You say, what, why did you pray about that? Because that's the proper procedure. And we know the time is in his hand. And we know the procedure. What's the important thing? What's of greatest value? That the word of God go on. That the gospel of Christ go out. That people who have never heard of Christ hear of him. Let our young men who are ministering the word in this church be free to go out and to minister them. And I had one of the sweetest and calmest times that I can remember in a long time of praying for the ministry of this church. Of praying for some of you whom I know you're walking off on a street that goes nowhere and your Christian life is stagnant and God wants to do a work in your heart that will transform you and give you his power and glory and let you live by strength, the strength of the Spirit of God. My dear friends, that's what it's all about. That's the performance that God expects of us. We know, he says. We know the times are in his hands. We know from the word of God the commands and the procedures. It's up to us to walk in them by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.